Father, we thank you for the great truths that we have sung together. Lord, uh, we could certainly turn uh, some of the phrases that we've sung into prayer. I fall short of what we have sung, Lord. I pray that the glory of the name of Jesus would truly be my passion, that it would be the passion of everybody in this room, such that no matter whether we're going through trial or time of rest, we would be able to, to bless your name, that we would, like Paul, seek to bring you glory, whether in life or in death. And as long as you're glorified, we are satisfied, whether we are living or whether we are dying, because all that matters to us is the glory of the name of Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word, for giving it to us so that that can happen, that transformation can take place in our lives, that the glory of Christ would become more and more precious to us, that it would become uh, the overriding thing in our lives, that it would be what we strive for every day to bring glory to his name, whether people are around or whether we're in private, whether it's in church or whether it's Monday through Saturday, that we would strive to bring Christ glory. So Lord, as we come to your word together, may that be what happens in us through your word. May your spirit uh, secure our hearts for you and grow us in our desire to bring glory to our Savior, we pray in, in his name. Amen. Well, good morning. You can take your Bibles and we're in Galatians 3 again. Lord willing, we'll actually finish the chapter today. Galatians 3. And we'll be looking at verses 23 through 29. Galatians 3, starting in verse 23, Paul writes, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. In high school, I very much cared what people thought about me, how they viewed me. In my eyes, my identity was based on what my classmates thought about me. I'd say that my classmates were my gods. If I got made fun of, or if I disappointed someone, or if I said something stupid, which was quite often, that was a bad day. But if I impressed my peers, that was a good day. There weren't many of those days. I don't think that if I cared, let me rephrase that, if I cared more about what God thought of me than what my classmates thought of me, I sure would have enjoyed high school a lot more. But my, my days rose and fell based on what people thought of me. As Paul wraps up Galatians 3, he's drawing their attention to their identity. They, these Galatians have been basing their identity on what the Judaizers, the false teachers, were telling them rather than who they were in Christ. And in 
In these last verses of Galatians 3, Paul is reminding these believers of their identity in Jesus Christ. He wants them to know who they are in Christ so that they'll stop being duped by the Judaizers who are telling them what they are lacking. The Judaizers, they have crept in. They've begun trying to tell these Galatians that they're lacking salvation, that they're inferior to the Jews, that they're outside of God's kingdom. And the Judaizers are telling these Galatians that there's certain things they need to do before God will truly and fully accept them. They're telling them that they need to place themselves under the law of Moses, that they need to get circumcised, that they need basically to become Jews. They need to fully come under the law of Moses. But Paul, in these last verses of Galatians 3, is going to show them differently. He's going to show them that in Christ, these believing Gentiles are on the same level as the Jews. He's going to show them that they are accepted by God. He's going to show them that actually they are sons of God. And in fact, if they place themselves under the law, they're going to be throwing that identity away. Paul doesn't want these Judaizers to steal the the eternal inheritance that these believers have already come to possess in Christ. And I think it's relevant to us today because as Christians, it's very easy to lose sight of what we have in Jesus and who we are in Jesus. And when we do lose sight of it, like the Galatians have lost sight of it, we become susceptible to those who try to get us to look for satisfaction or life or meaning somewhere else other than Jesus. And if we fall for what others are selling us, we will unwittingly be trading a kingdom for a cage, which is what the Galatians are on the precipice of doing. So Paul, he's going to begin showing these Galatians the difference between being under law and being clothed in Christ. He's going to help them to see what life would be like if they put themselves under the law like the Judaizers were telling them to do. That's what he's going to start to do in verses 23 through 25. He's going to show them what it looks like to be captive to the law. Captive to the law. Let's look at verse 23. Paul says, But before faith came... We were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Paul begins this verse by saying, but before faith came. Now, that's a little confusing because is Paul saying that there was a time when faith was not around? Well, that can't be what he's saying, right? Because what did he say back up in verse 6? What did he say about Abraham? Abraham what? God. He believed God, right? Abraham had faith. And Hebrews 11 verse 4 says, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. So faith was in the world from the very beginning, wasn't it? So when Paul says before faith came, he doesn't mean that there was a time when faith was not around. No, instead he is speaking of a faith that explicitly has Jesus Christ as its object. That's what he means when he says before faith came. That is, before the kind of faith that specifically had Jesus as its object. The coming of this faith echoes verse 19. Look back up at verse 19. That said, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come 
to whom the promise had been made. Verse 19 speaks of the coming of Jesus, the coming of that special seed of Abraham to whom the promise had been made. Later in chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul will go on to say, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son. He's using the same verb in each of those times. He's talking about someone coming, that is Jesus Christ. And this this clues us in to when Paul says in verse 23, before faith came, he's talking about faith as associated with Jesus Christ. And he's, he has already made mention of that particular faith. Look at verse 22 of Galatians 3. That says, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So when Paul says, before faith came, He's talking about faith as specifically associated with Jesus. That's what he's talking about. Now, of course, people had faith in the Messiah before Jesus came, right? They were looking for him, expecting him, trusting in him. But you couldn't put a name or a face to that title until he actually came, right? So that's what Paul's getting at. Before faith came means before people started exercising faith in Jesus, in particular. Paul says, before that faith came, he says, verse 23, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up. Paul here is using prisoner-type language. When Moses came down off that mountain and delivered the law to Israel, that was Israel being placed under the guard of that law. The law held the people in custody, The law shut everyone up under sin. And remember what sin is in the eyes of the law? Transgression, right? It was rendering them lawbreakers and holding them under that condemnation. The people were like prisoners in a jail who had been sentenced and they're waiting for their execution. But as we see, there is an end date to this being held in custody by the law. And that end date was when faith came, when Christ came and people began to put their faith in him. Christ took their punishment on himself and God pardoned those who believed in him of their crimes. He pardoned them of their transgressions. Now I want you to picture yourself as a criminal, all right? You're a criminal, you've committed terrible crimes against humanity, you've been tried, you've been convicted, and you've been sentenced to be executed by the electric chair. And you're sitting in a cell on death row, and you're waiting for that day to come when you will get strapped into that chair and electrocuted until you die. And you've been sitting in your cell all alone, and as you've been sitting there, you have come to feel deeply convicted over the horrible things you have done. Before that time in your cell, you were proud. You were boasting about what you did and how you were getting away with it. But then you got convicted, and then you were sentenced. And now you're sitting in your cell, and you're looking at a cold chair that you're going to get strapped in, and your brain's going to get fried. And you are thinking about how, how guilty you really are. No longer are you proud. It's starting to dawn upon you that, wow, I really deserve what is about to happen. I wish... I could take back the things that I have done. And there's nothing I can do to get out of this situation. 
and I don't deserve to get out of this situation. And having come to that realization, as you sit in your dark, cold cell, you fall to your knees and you cry out to God to be merciful to you, the sinner. And amazingly, the day before your execution date, you get word that those that you have committed crimes against, the families that you have hurted, they have all forgiven you. And not only have they forgiven you, but the president has decided to pardon you. You're free. The next day, instead of getting strapped to that chair, you're released out of prison. You walk out and you get on the bus to travel back to your house. And you're just in awe over what has happened, how God has shown mercy to you. But as you're on that bus, someone sits down next to you. And this stranger says to you, you know, you're not really pardoned unless you go back to prison and you put on your prison clothes and you sit in that cell for the rest of your life. If you do that, then you'll really be pardoned. Who in his right mind, being pardoned of his crimes, would fall for what that stranger is selling him? But that's what the Judaizers are telling the Galatians to do. They've been freed from condemnation through Christ, but here's the Judaizers saying, you know what, you need to go back to the law, you need to go get under that law, get circumcised, and then maybe God will pardon you. Paul doesn't want them to fall for that ruse. In verse 24 of Galatians 3, Paul seems to change the picture from an imprisoned criminal to that of a child held in the custody of a guardian. Look at verse 24. Paul says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. The word for tutor there is the Greek word pedagogos. You can hear the English word pedagogue there, right? And in English, pedagogue means a teacher. But that's not really what the Greek word pedagogos means. Actually, if you break the word down, it kind of hints that it, it originally meant something else. Think of pied, pediatrician, has to do with children. And then the verb ago means to lead. A pedagogos was someone who led a child around. Listen to what Richard Longenecker says about the pedagogos in the ancient world. He says, quote, Paul's use of the term pedagogos has often puzzled commentators. For while today we think of pedagogues as teachers, in antiquity a pedagogos was distinguished from a teacher. The word for teacher was didaskalos. A, a pedagogos was distinguished from a didaskalos. The pedagogos had custodial and disciplinary functions rather than educative or instructional ones. And then later in his commentary on Galatians, Longenecker goes on to say, quote, the pedagogos, though usually a slave, was an important figure in ancient patrician households. That is, households who were kind of centered around the authority of the father in the house. The, the pedagogos was an important figure in ancient patrician households, being charged with the supervision and conduct of one or more sons in the family. He was distinguished from the didaskalos, the teacher, for he gave no formal instruction, but administered the directives of the father in a custodial manner, though of course indirectly he taught 
by the supervision he gave and the discipline he administered, unquote. One Greek lexicon says this of the Pythagogos, quote, the man, the Pythagogos, usually a slave whose duty it was to conduct a boy or youth to and from school and to superintend his conduct generally. He was not a teacher. When the young man became of age, he was no longer needed, unquote. So the Pythagogos was a slave he was tasked with supervising the father's children, and the children had to do what he said. They had to go where he led them, and they had to dis submit themselves to his discipline when they stepped out of line. And this slave's role was temporary. It wasn't permanent. When the child grew up to a certain age, he was no longer under the supervision of the pedagogos, the custodian. In the case of the law, the coming of faith in Christ is what brought the law's custodial role to an end. And when Paul calls the law a pedagogos, he's emphasizing the temporary and supervisory role of the law. Now, what was the point of having the law as the pedagogos? This gets back to Paul's uh, question in verse 19. Do you remember what he asked there? Why the law then? And he gave uh, some, some insight as to its purpose. Well, he's continuing to do that here. What was the point of having the law as a custodian? Paul says in verse 24, why? What does the last part of that verse say? The law has become our custodian to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So that we may be justified by faith. In the ancient world, why would a father set one of his slaves over his young son? What would be the purpose of a father doing that? Well, to, to keep track of that son, to not let the son just go off anywhere he wanted, do whatever he wanted. It was to make sure that son got to where he needed to go, to discipline that son. Now think about you, yourself. Before you came to know Christ, where is it that you needed to go? Or rather, who did you need to go to? You needed to go to Jesus Christ, right? If you didn't go to Christ, you would be lost and you'd suffer the wrath of God forever. Why is it that you finally did turn to Jesus? Why is it that you turned from sin and you ran to him by faith and asked him to be your Savior and your Lord? Was it not because you understood that you had sinned against God? Was it not because you felt convicted of your sin, knowing that you were guilty before God and you deserved his wrath? Was it not because you came to believe that Jesus and only Jesus could deliver you from the penalty that you deserved, death? Well, isn't that what the law of God does for the sinner? The, the law of God brings the sinner to that realization. It exposes the sinner as a sinner. The law condemns that sinner and makes that sinner painfully aware of the wrath of God that abides upon him. The law causes that sinner to despair of ever being able to save himself by his works, just like that prisoner in that cell. There's nothing he could do to get out of there. The law makes you recognize that. And the law keeps that sinner from placing his hope in anyone else to save him except for God. 
The law brings the sinner to his knees and it pulls out of the sinner a strangled cry for God to be merciful to him. And once the glory of Christ dawns upon the soul of a sinner so afflicted by the law, that sinner does what? Does he try to work real hard to get to God? No, the, the, the law has completely just ripped any thought of that out of his brain. That sinner, so convicted by the law, runs to Christ alone to be his Savior. Do you see how the law is like a paedagogos, a custodian, not letting you go anywhere except to the place the Father wants you to go to? It keeps you from trying to work your way to God and instead gets you to look to Christ and to run to Christ. Let's look at verse 25 of Galatians 3. Paul says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a paedagogos, a custodian. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a paedagogos. Once faith came, and we know what that means, right? Once Jesus came and sinners started placing their faith in him, those sinners were brought out from under the paedagogos, the custodian. They were brought out from under the law. They were no longer in that state of condemnation that they were before they trusted in Christ. Let's go over to Romans chapter 8, because Paul says this in a little bit different way. He describes this freedom that we have in Christ, this, this bringing brought out from under the condemnation of the law that we have in Christ. Romans 8, verses 1 to 2. Paul says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What is it that brings condemnation? It's the law of God. The fact that we've transgressed the law of God. But in Christ, there is no condemnation, right? Why? Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So in Christ, we are set free from the law of sin and death. We are set free from the law's condemnation. When we get to verses 26 to 29, Paul uh, begins talking about what we have in Christ and who we are in Christ. He begins speaking of us being clothed with Christ. Clothed with Christ. What is it about coming to faith in Christ that sets a person free from the law's captivity? What is it about the fact that I've trusted in Jesus that brings me out from under the custody of the law as a paedagogos? Well, Paul begins to explain in verse 26. He says, for... So it looks like he's explaining verse 25. Verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Being a son of God, you, are, you no longer have to be under the paedagogos, the custodian. Well, I thought if you were under the paedagogos, you were a child. So I thought I was a child. If I have a paedagogos, it's because I'm a child of the Father, right? How, what changed when I become a believer in Jesus? How is it now, in what sense now am I a son? Well, let's look at, ahead in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. 
That says, now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, though, although he is owner of everything. To be under a paedagogos, a custodian, was to be a child who was no higher in the pecking order than a slave was. Because remember, the paedagogos was usually a what? Was he a free person? No, a slave. And yet the child had to do what the paedagogos said, right? He had to obey that slave. He wasn't even higher than that slave on the pecking order, even though being the son of the father, he was the owner of everything. In uh, verse 7 of chapter 4, at the end of that verse, Paul says, if a son, then an heir through God. If a son, then an heir through God. Until you reach the age of maturity, you were not in a position to enjoy being an heir. You know, the inheritance wouldn't fall into the hands of a 12-year-old. No, when you reached the age of maturity, it was then that you could fully step into your role as an heir of the father. It was in that sense that you were recognized legally as the son. So it's, it's that dynamic that Paul seems to be jumping onto in verse 26 when he says, you're sons of God. That's why you're not under a paedagogos anymore. You're heirs of God. That's why you're not under the custodian anymore. So that's the reason. But how is it that coming to faith in Jesus makes you and me a son or daughter of God? What is it about believing in Jesus that makes me an heir, makes me a son or a daughter of God? And Paul explains that in verses 27 through 29. Let me just read those verses so we can get the whole picture in view. So he's going to explain how we are sons through faith. Verse 27, For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. The bottom line in these three verses is that through faith, we are made one with who? We're united to Christ, right? And who is Christ again? We've already talked about this. Look back in verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed... He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. He's the one to whom God made the promises. Who is Jesus according to chapter 4, verse 4? Look down at verse 4 of chapter 4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law. Who is Jesus? He is God's son. So if we're united to Jesus, who does that make us? That makes us sons and daughters of Abraham. That makes us fellow heirs of that promise that God made to Christ. That makes us sons and daughters of God because that is who Jesus is. So it's, it's, it's in that sense that we, through faith, are made sons of God. It's because we're united to the Son of God. Now let's, let's walk through these verses a bit more slowly. Let me read verse 27 again for us. 
Paul says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. What is baptism? Well, when there is no faith, baptism is just an empty ritual that accomplishes absolutely nothing for the person who is baptized. But for the one who has turned from sin and who has trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, baptism is the outward sign of an inward spiritual reality. You've heard that before, I'm sure. A reality that has become ours through faith. And what is that reality? What is it that baptism is testifying to when, after believing, we get baptized? Well, when you're dipped beneath the water, what is that a sign of? A sign that you have been buried with Jesus, right? And when you come up out of that water, what is that a sign of? It's a sign of you being resurrected with Christ. You haven't died. You haven't been buried. You haven't been resurrected. But Jesus has. And through faith in him, you are one with him in what he has done in his death, burial, and resurrection. Let's go over quickly to Colossians 2. In verse 12, where Paul makes this very plain. Colossians 2, verse 12. Paul here describes believers as, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So baptism shows forth what has happened to us through faith in Jesus. And back in Galatians 3, verse 27, Paul describes that union with Jesus here as clothing ourselves with Christ, like a robe that we put on us. We have clothed ourselves with Christ through faith, and baptism testifies to that fact. We have clothed ourselves with the one who's died and risen from the dead. And Paul stresses in verse 27 that this has happened to how many believers? All. He says, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So as many as go into the waters of baptism from a sincere faith, as many as do that, that same number have been clothed with Christ. Now, according to verse 28, baptism is not only a sign of our unity with Christ, but it's a sign of our unity with one another in Christ. Look at verse 28. Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When you baptize, a, let's, let's say we had a, a baptismal service, and let's say one of you was a Jew and, and you came up and you got baptized because of your faith in Christ, and immediately after that Jew, uh, a non-Jew came up, and because he believed in Jesus, we baptized him. Now, which one of those two got more wet than the other one? We do it by immersion here, right? Which one got wetter than the other one? They got just as wet. If I did my job and really dunked them under really good, they got just as wet, Jew and Gentile. I didn't discriminate. I, I, I plunged both of them down there exactly the same. Now, when you baptize, let's say, a slave 
and then you baptize a free person, does baptism show that the free person was more dead in Christ and more resurrected with Christ than the slave? No. That same reality is equally true of both. Their social class doesn't matter, doesn't make a difference in how united with Jesus they are. When you baptize a man and then you baptize a woman, is there anything in baptism that shows that the man is more united to Christ than the woman is? No, they are equally united to Christ. They are equally clothed with Christ. There's no difference. Paul says, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Each person, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their social standing, regardless of their gender, they all clothed themselves with the same Christ, and they were clothed completely by the same Christ. Now, when Paul says that there's no Jew nor Greek, no slave nor free, no male and female, he's not saying that those distinctions disappear in all respects. He's specifically talking about salvation here. There are passages in Paul's writings where he clearly continues to make those distinctions. For example, let's look at the distinction between Jew and Gentile. Let's go back to Romans 11. Just to see Paul, he continues to, to make those distinctions, even when talking about believers. Romans 11 Verse 1, Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, the Israelites, has he? May it never be. For I too am an, what? Israelite. He says, I am an Israelite. Well, I thought you were one in Christ, Paul. I thought all of those were done away with. No, he still identifies himself as an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. And then later in verse 11 of that chapter, continuing to talk about the hope for Israel, that God will bring Israel to repentance and faith in Christ. Verse 11, Paul says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Speaking of Israel, may it never be, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are what? He's writing to the church in Rome, right? He's writing to many believers who are Gentiles, and he, he says, you are Gentiles. I'm writing to you who are Gentiles. They still have that distinction, right? So Paul's not saying that those distinctions completely disappear, uh, what about slave and free? Let's go over to Ephesians 6. This is Paul telling members of the household how to behave in a way that brings glory to God. Ephesians 6, verse 5. He's writing to believers in the church. He says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. They still have that distinction of being a slave, even though they're believers. Verse 9, he says, And masters, obviously a master is free, right? Masters, do the same things to them. 
So there's still that, that distinction between slave and, and free man. Well, how about male and female? Well, let's go over to 1 Timothy 2. First Timothy 2, verse 11, Paul says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Paul there, he's, he's talking about the, the roles of men and women in church. He's not a chauvinist. He's not saying women are inferior. He's talking about the roles in the church that God has laid out. And he's still making a distinction there between men and women. He, God wants men to teach in the church. He, wants, he, does, he does not give that role to women in the church. So there's still a distinction being made between male and female. So when Paul says back in Galatians 3 that there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, what he's saying is that when it comes to how you're saved and when it comes to how saved you are, there is no distinction. Those distinctions get swallowed up in Christ such that he is our everything. A Jew and a Greek are just as saved as the other. Same with slave and free man, same with male and female. There's not different ways of salvation for different people and there's not different levels of salvation for different people. Now we read in our call to worship, Paul reiterated that, right? In Colossians 3 verse 11, Christ, uh, well, I'm blanking on it. Let me just read it. Colossians 3, verse 11, speaking of the renewal that we have in Christ, it's a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Now, what Paul is saying here in verse 28 is completely contrary to the Judaizers, what they were saying, right? Because the Judaizers, they did see a distinction between Jew and Gentile when it came to salvation. And it was such a distinction that it led them to put pressure on these Galatian believers to become Jews in order to get saved. As a Gentile, they couldn't get saved, apparently, according to the Judaizers. But Paul is saying here that through faith, a Gentile, an uncircumcised Galatian, is just as saved as the believing Jew is. And it goes for slave and free, male and female as well. That's why what Peter did, remember back in chapter 2, when he uh, was at first eating with Gentiles, and then when Jews came, he started to pull back from it. He, was, he began to make a distinction between himself and the Gentiles in the realm of salvation. That was very bad, and Paul wasn't going to stand for it because Peter was implying that maybe a Jew is more saved than a Gentile. Maybe a Gentile is not saved at all, even though he has faith in Jesus, and Paul wasn't going to stand for that. Let's look at verse 29 of Galatians 3. Paul continues, he says, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Let me read verse 16 again. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. 
He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. Now look at what that promise was in verse 8. What was that promise that God made to Abraham and to Christ? Verse 8, the end of the verse, the promise was, all the nations will be blessed in you. By being united to Christ, we are united to the one to whom the promises were made. And we are therefore made the heirs of that promise together with Jesus such that we experience what it is to be blessed in him. Verse 29 says Abraham's descendants, but it's literally Abraham's seed. When we believe Jesus, we are united to him as the seed of Abraham and we become the seed of Abraham. And what was promised to Christ, we get to participate in because we are now the seed of Abraham. Let's go over to Romans 8, where Paul again speaks of this. Our union with Jesus and what it means for our eternity. Romans 8, verse 16. Paul says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, we are what? Heirs also, heirs of God and what? Fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. When we believe in Jesus, we become fellow heirs with Christ because we are in him, because we're clothed with him. That is our identity as believers. That's the identity that Paul is reminding these Galatians that they have. They are clothed with Christ. And being one with Christ, they are heirs of the promises. Just as much as a a believing Jew is an heir of the promise of eternal salvation. When you become a believer, your identity is in Christ. When you got baptized, that was you testifying that you had clothed yourself with Christ by faith. And compared to that identity, all other identities are secondary and pale in comparison. You know this, that our culture today is obsessed with identity. You know, how do you identify? What are your pronouns? We are obsessed with identity today. And, and it's an obsession that is particularly hung up on politics, skin color, sexual orientation, with many identifying with a sexually a sexual orientation that is sinful. And the ironic thing is that despite this obsession with identity, the most important identity of all is completely disregarded. And what is that? Am I in Christ or out of Christ? That's the question, the overriding question of concern we should have for everyone. Are you in Christ or are you out of Christ? When you stand before God on Judgment Day, Your eternal destiny is going to be determined by that identity, not any other identity. You're not going to be judged based on your voting records. You're not going to be judged on your skin pigment levels. You're going to have your eternal destiny determined by whether you are in Christ or out of Christ. Period. And if you are in Christ, by faith, God will welcome you into his kingdom as a son, as a daughter, of God. He's just inviting, he's just welcoming you home 
because that's where his son is. And if you're clothed with his son, that's where you're going to be. But if you are outside of Christ, God will bar you from entry and he will treat you as the sinful lawbreaker you are. So are you in Christ today? If you are not in Christ, your voting record is not going to save you. Your skin color is not going to save you. Your specially chosen pronoun or acronym letter is not going to save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. So if you are not in Christ today, repent and trust in him, and you will clothe yourself with him, and God will welcome you into heaven. And if you are in Christ today, then quit boasting about identities that are meaningless in the light of eternity. Instead, make your boast about the only destiny or the only identity that truly matters. That is, I'm in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, your, your grace toward us is amazing that simply through faith in your Son, we are changed. Our identity is changed. We are in Christ. It's like when Ruth came to Boaz, her kinsman redeemer, that night. And when she came home, Naomi asked Ruth, who are you? Implying, has your identity changed? When we believe in Jesus, our identity changes from being out of Christ to in Christ. And being in Christ, you accept us. You make us sons and daughters of yours. Lord, help us to never trade that for anything. And help us to never elevate secondary identities above that one primary identity of utmost importance. Lord, keep us clinging to Christ, we pray, to the end of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.